The reading this morning is from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest, dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass his away, and his kingdom one. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, 
and the visions of my head alarm me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Four great beasts are four kings who shall arise up out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heavens shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my colour changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, thank you very much, Jean, and congratulations for getting through that Bible reading for us. Uh, An extraordinary passage, an extraordinary passage with extraordinary images. It's one of those passages that you're always lost even though you know exactly where you are. Um, And so I look forward to going through this passage with you. Uh, Before I do, I wanted to say thank you to you all. Uh, It always brings back fond memories whenever I come to this church. Uh, The very first gathering that I ever had with my work with AFES at the Uni Over the Road actually happened in this room 
when about 20 of us sat together in a circle uh, and I spelled out my plans for the ministry we were about to embark in on university. And I still remember someone from this church, a young man, looking at me squarely in the eyes and saying, who on earth are you and what on earth makes you think you can do any of the things you just said to us? Um, so it's a church of honesty. I've always appreciated that. Um, but one of the things I've also enjoyed is the way that this church has continually prayed for the university across the road, uh, for the way that you have enjoyed the success of the kingdom as a Christian group has been planted on campus over there. Uh, and it's just been wonderful to see and feel your support. And so thank you for that. Uh, the Christian group is continuing over there at the moment, even though COVID, of course, is changing everything. Uh, the beauty of uni ministry is that because everything is always changing anyway, uh, we're able to bounce back from all changes fairly quickly. So even just in the last few weeks, uh, we've started up a Thursday night gathering uh, where we play games together uh, and then we go through a topic. We just looked at identity last week. If you could pray for me this week, uh, we're inviting non-Christians along to hear what the Bible has to say about sex. So another topic where no one will be bored, everyone will be listening, but there's lots of ammo for anyone who wants to use it. Uh, so look, thank you again for the support that this church has given over the years. Uh, I'm going to pray, give thanks for you guys, and pray that God would help us as we jump in and look at Daniel chapter 7 together. Uh, please pray with me. Lord God, again, thank you for this church, for the great heritage that it has, for raising up and supporting the work of the kingdom here on the coast. Thank you for the way that they have partnered with me personally over the years and the support that they've given. Uh, and Lord, I thank you that this is a church that knows and loves your word. So please help us as we look at this extraordinary chapter today and please help us to make sense of it together. Amen. Well, a lot of you may not realise, but you and I have been on an adventure now for six years together as we've been going through the book of Daniel, roughly about a chapter a year, uh, and we're up to Daniel chapter 7. So at this rate, uh, in another five short years, we'll make it to the end of the book, and then in the 12 years, we'll get through it all together and probably just start it all again. But thank you for your patience as we've gone through the book of Daniel together. Uh, but today we come to a chapter that's a little bit different to most of the chapters that we've seen so far. Most of what you could call Daniel so far has been history. Today we get to a, a genre, a writing style that we know as apocalypse. Uh, and as soon as I say apocalypse, some of you are already thinking zombies uh, and the pictures that we had in this chapter aren't far off that. Apocalyptic uh, can mean end of times kind of ideas. Uh, but today, when we come across the apocalypse of Daniel 7, it's not so much about the end of all things, that's what an apocalypse can be, but here we're dealing with apocalypse as in the writing style. So just like in the New Testament, we have the gospel as in a writing style, that's the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, or you can get the gospel in terms of an idea, the books that aren't called gospels but keep coming back to the story of Jesus, you can have gospel used two ways in the New Testament, here we're using the writing style, apocalypse, but thankfully, apocalyptic writing styles is something that as Australians we're actually well versed in, and it's something that we use and enjoy almost every day. So I thought we'd just start by enjoying some Australian apocalypses. I'll see if I can bring them up here. Here we go. Here's some Australian apocalypses that I just downloaded yesterday. An apocalypse, of course, is that great writing style or that great image that shows you the truth of the things that you can't see. 
Now, you guys already knew that as soon as I put that image up there, and I imagine most of you were able to figure out exactly what they're going on about. They're political cartoons that are showing you the power behind the real power that you can see. And again, as soon as you saw those cartoons, I don't think any of you really thought that somewhere in the world lurks a kangaroo who really does wear red pants and is being controlled by someone who uh, happens to be an American. Of course, there is no kangaroo. But you looked at those political cartoons and you were able to understand everything the author was trying to tell you. And so we've got that first great political cartoon, a little bit outdated, but it's just hard to stop having a go at Trump, isn't it? So we've, it's a little bit outdated, but of course the first cartoon is letting us know that although what America saw was their president just doing what presidents do, the power behind the power, the hidden reality that of course explained everything that is Trump, was Putin and the way that he was the puppet master controlling everything. Now, you might agree with that, you might disagree with that, but you can see the point that the author there is trying to make. What I love is the symmetry with the next political cartoon, because although, according to one political commentator, the power behind the power of America is indeed Russia, the power behind us as Australians at the moment is, of course, America. So what's behind the fight between the panda and the kangaroo? And you already know who that is, don't you? That's China and America who, of course, is behind the little stoush we're having at the moment? Well, it's America. So what I thought would be great is if we could maybe devise a third political cartoon. If Russia controls America and America controls Australia, what if we could then get China to control Russia and the circle would be complete? We could all just be having a go at one another and no one would really be in control, would they? That's an apocalypse. An apocalypse is somebody's idea, it's somebody's way of communicating to you something that's very real, very true in their eyes, but something you can't see. And I've got to admit, as a father of a teenage daughter, how great would it be if I could show her the world through apocalyptic glasses? When it, One day when the young suitor comes and knocks on my door, you know, that brave young man who's there to ask my daughter out. How great would it be if he and I could just, uh, my daughter rather, and I could just pop on the apocalyptic glasses and we could see hidden truth, hidden reality. We wouldn't just see this handsome, brave young man at the door knocking, asking my daughter out. What we would instead see is true hidden reality. We would see his character. We would see his nature. And so as soon as we put the glasses on, what would we see? We'd see a speaking donkey just braying and just messing all over the place. Or perhaps we would see a clown or a jester or something like that. How great would it be if you could see the world through apocalyptic glasses, if you could see hidden reality? And of course, uh, for me, as a bike rider, I would love to be able to explain to you what the world looks like, what the hidden danger that is P-platers really looks like from a bike rider's point of view. Whenever I get on my bike, you wouldn't see a car coming to get you, you would see a tank with teeth and with a target on your back. You know, if you, if you could only see the world through apocalyptic glasses, if you can only see the power and the true nature of reality around us, well, according to the writers of the Bible, the world would be easier to understand. And of course, that's the world that we're now jumping into in Daniel 7, as the author is trying to make this world easier for us to understand, not more complicated, easier through the symbolism of pictures so that we can look at the world around us and understand the world that we live in. Now, again, 
It has been about five or six years since we started looking at Daniel together, and although I know all of you have memorised all the talks we've done together, I thought maybe a quick you know, recap wouldn't hurt. Uh, if you can remember just those five or six short years ago when we looked at Daniel chapter 1, the whole message of Daniel is given to you in one chapter, and it's all about the God who gives. God only does three things in Daniel chapter 1. He gives, he gives, he gives. It's the same verb in Hebrew. And God is the power behind everything. He gives his people over to Nebuchadnezzar. He gives fatness to Daniel, even though all he eats is vegetables. And he gives wisdom to Daniel's friends. God is the God who is in control and deciding everything. What's fascinating about then the book of Daniel is the way that it then, if you like, has a, a structure all of its own. So if you have a look at the quick structure I've thrown up there, you can see the way that the chapter we're about to look at and chapter 2 are very similar. They're going to deal with a vision of four kingdoms and we're going to see the end of the reign of those four kingdoms. But of course, chapters 3 and chapter 6 are quite similar as is chapters 4 and 5. I only really just throw that up there so that you can know that the Bible is an extraordinary document. It is fascinating in the way that it is written and it communicates on so many different levels. All you really need to know today is if you want to understand chapter 7, we're seeing a lot of what we've already seen in chapter 2, that there are kingdoms that we need to understand how to think about properly. But of course, it's all just about Daniel chapter 1. There is a God who gives and it's his giving that shapes reality. Now, there's an internal structure in Daniel so far. Chapters 2 to chapter 7 of Daniel, for some reason, are written in a different language to the rest of the book. Chapters 1 and chapters 8 to 12 are written in a language called Hebrew. Chapter 2 to chapter 7 is written in a language called Aramaic. To the untrained eyes like us, it looks exactly the same, but they're two different languages, and we're coming to the end of what you might call the international language of Daniel. But there's this internal structure in Daniel's 2 to 7. And then I just wanted to show you some of the progression. Again, this is just to let you know the Bible is an extraordinary document. We're looking at, if you like, the difference between what we have seen in the life of Daniel. So while in chapter 2 we have foreign kings worshipping a statue, by the time we get to chapter 7, we're going to see the whole world worshipping, surprise, surprise, a human figure. A human figure made a statue of himself in chapter 2 and got us to worship the statue. Now, in chapter 7, we're seeing God, if you like, putting forward a human figure that we are all to worship. It's an extraordinary progression. In chapters 3 and 4, we had this idea that Nebuchadnezzar was testifying to the enduring reign of God. And then chapter 7, we're actually going to see that there's the reign of a human that's going to endure forever and ever and ever. We saw humiliation in the life of Nebuchadnezzar in the early chapters, and we're going to see that with the heavenly powers again today. Now, remember, everything I just told you then, if you've forgotten all of it, all you need to remember is, wow, isn't the Bible amazing? All right, let's jump in and have a look at these extraordinary events. And the first extraordinary event that we see, as if this chapter wasn't complicated enough, is that chapter 6, if you like, was almost a prequel. When we get to chapter 7, we're jumping back in time to the events at the end of chapter 5 before chapter 6. That is, this is all going to take place during the reign of Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the second of the four kings that Daniel served under. 
Nebuchadnezzar was the first, then Belshazzar, uh, and then we had two kings that we were introduced to in chapter 6. And if you like, at the end of the fourth king, King Cyrus's reign, we're then told that earlier in Daniel's lifetime, he was given a vision of four beasts. Why weren't we given the vision when it actually happened in Daniel's life? I think it just helps it make sense. We read about four kings, and then afterwards we're told that Daniel is given an image of four beasts. What's this vision all about? Have a look at verse 2 with me. Daniel declare, I saw in my vision by night, I'd call it a nightmare, but he calls it a vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And I think what you're meant to hear here echoing in the background is in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, you had this chaotic, watery mess in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and then the Spirit descended on these chaotic waters, the Spirit of God. It hovered, it floated, and then it systematically brought order to chaos until you get to the end of Genesis chapter 1, and the highlight of the order of God is when man was made to rule in God's image. Man and women were made in the image of God to rule God's world and to care for God's world under to him. Daniel 7 is the reverse. We have the Spirit of God or wind of God as it's translated here. It's the same word in both Aramaic and Hebrew. Here, if you like, we still have the Spirit of God, but it's doing the reverse. It's not bringing order to watery chaos. It's actually bringing beasts up out of the water. And these beasts are going to rule. And we meet the first beast there in verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Now, again, if we'd been reading through Daniel uh, sequentially, we would have just finished chapter 6, perhaps the most famous chapter in Daniel. What happens in Daniel chapter 6? Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was thrown to the lions. What's the first beast that we meet? Well, it's a lion that's coming up out of the sea, only this lion is a terrifying lion because it's got wings. Can you imagine that? Now, again, as a bike rider, I know the most terrifying thing that you can face on the roads is indeed the magpie, that winged beast that can just get you from anywhere. My record is being swooped by 11 different magpies on one bike ride. The first helmet I ever owned I replaced because there were so many chips taken out of the back of it by magpies. And just recently I was in fact knocked off my bike by a car only just a month ago in a hit and run. Uh, I was a couple of weeks off the bike. I went for my first bike ride a few days ago and I was terrified. I spent the whole ride at least initially just watching for cars thinking am I going to be knocked off again until... I was swooped by a magpie. (laughs) Then all of a sudden, I forgot all about the cars that were all around me. I spent the rest of the ride just looking up, waiting for these birds of terror just to come and invade my space again. Can you imagine the terror of not just a magpie, not just a lion, but you combine these two evils together. This is the lion that can fly and can get you from anywhere. But notice the way that this lion come eagle is then... Well, it's grotesquely deformed. The wings are savagely plucked off. The whole chapter is actually about savagery, and we get this beast now become a man. 
Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. What sort of comment are we being given here? We're going to meet four beasts. We've just read about four kings. We've seen the terror when a king actually throws another human being to the lions and we've been waiting for the destruction that would come. But here is a lion come human or a dehumanized lion. What is the comment do you think God is making about powerful rulers who use their power for terror and violence and tyranny? We meet the first animal, beast, and it is indeed terrifying, and then we meet the second. And the second, if you like, is even worse than the first because it's all about destruction, isn't it? It's not just about ruling with oppression. It's about destruction. Even the very bones of its enemies are pulverized under its feet. This is a ruler that isn't just looking to rule. It's looking to dominate. It's looking to pulverize, and even death isn't enough. Even once you've been killed, it just wants to smash you out of existence. And then you get the third beast. Again, the third beast is there just to devour and consume and destroy and we meet the fourth beast the fourth beast is the one that seems to have the most attention dwelt on it doesn't it it's a little bit like the first three beasts we've got these three beasts after the first three uh, kings but this last beast it's almost as if it is a beast come well group of beasts And the conflict and the violence that you see in the first three beasts is not only external, if I can put it like that, to this fourth beast. It's not only inflicting violence on everyone around it. There's also internal violence within this first beast, within this fourth uh, image. And the violence seems to continue as this one beast becomes a plurality of things that fight everyone and everything, including itself. And the take-home message seems to be... A mouth that speaks great and horrible things. The word great here is just another way of saying terrible. We get these four beasts and they're violent and they're dehumanizing in the way that they treat them, the world and God's creation. And then you get this last beast that just sort of seems, seems to keep morphing into a mass of violence and ungodlike rule. And then everything changes. Verse 13 just It just comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? We've looked at four kings who have been oppressing God's people. We've looked at the way that they treat even their own people. And we look at the violence and we just can't understand it. And then verse 13 comes along. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, I've jumped ahead of myself, sorry, verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words, and I've done it again, I really meant verse 9, sorry about that. Verse 9, here we go. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels were a burning fire. We have the chaos of beasts that the Spirit of God himself has dragged up onto the earth and then all of a sudden they're just replaced by this calm and serene image. And there are thrones and you notice that they're placed, this is something orderly, this is something where time has been taken. What would you do if a ferocious lion was flying towards you seeking to devour? Well, you'd run, wouldn't you? You'd flee, you'd fight, you'd do something. What does the Ancient of Days do? 
Well, he takes his time. He's calm. He's ordered. He's in control. He, he places his rule, if you like. He places his thrones. And just like, if you like, the nature and the character of the beast said something about the people behind them, the depiction of the Ancient of Days speaks to us here. His clothing was white as snow. You can't see much snow in Queensland, can you? You just don't look around and see much. When I lived in southern New South Wales, when I turned off the freeway to get to the suburb I lived in, uh, I would see in winter three snow-capped mountains. They were beautiful. They were just sort of there in the background, and you would just see white, and they were pure, and they were clean. When you get up close to a snow-capped mountain where you see brown and you see sticks and you see dirt, but when you look at them from afar, it's just, it's just white. It's pure. What is this pre-existent one, the one who was there before the beasts? What is he like? Well, he's pure. He is clean, but he's not docile. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels were burning. This is the ancient one, the one who has always existed. This is the one who sits in judgment over human rulers. He sits in judgment over beasts. This is the one who was pure, and yet, if I can put it like this, he gets his hands dirty. That is, he is active in judgment, but his judgment doesn't dirty his hands. He is clean in his rule. The wheels are spinning. The fire is there. He's burning. His justice is there for everyone to see, but it doesn't consume him. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. This is not an inert God. Savage beasts but under the judgment of this God and under the judgment of the people of God. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books are open. And it's almost as if you're being invited to choose what you're going to stare at. Are you going to stare at the beasts, at these violent, oppressive human rulers? Are you going to look at all their might and all their power and be intimidated? Or are you going to look at the one who has always and will always be? And are you going to see who is on his side? The thousands of thousands and the ten thousand times ten thousand. Daniel, if you like, is being called to have apocalyptic vision. Horrible oppressive rulers on one side, Daniel. The king of kings on the other, where are you going to look? Now, verse 11 is again extraordinary because it's almost as if someone from the beast, someone from humanity is now trying to reach up into heaven itself and trying to distort some of the serenity of God's rule. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Is this the moment? Is this the moment where humans are finally able to undo God, trying to invade heaven? A little bit like Tower of Babel, isn't it? It's, it's just what people do, isn't it? We think if we can work together enough, become strong enough, control enough, that maybe, just maybe, we can invade the very throne room, the very heavens of God. And here, if you like, at the end of verse 8, we have the most powerful image of a human ruler you can ever have. And we're wondering, verse 11, is he going to be able to invade heaven? We keep reading, as I looked, the beast was killed. And that's it. Just a word. As I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, and it was given over to be burned by fire. What fire? Well, the fire that very comes from the very throne room, the very judgment of God. As for the rest of the beasts, as ferocious as they were, their dominion will be taken away, but their lives will be prolonged for a season and a time. The rule of God 
is the reality that shapes everything that happens here on earth. There are beasts that will come and go, but it is actually the judgment of God that is behind all things. Then we get to verse 13. Verse 13 is the one that I just, I just couldn't see coming. We've just witnessed a human ruler being depicted as a beast who through his blasphemy, through his evil words, through his violence, is almost as if he was trying to invade the very throne room of God and tried to take on God himself. What is God's response to humans who have no idea what to do with rule, who are so barbaric in the way that they treat one another that it's as if they're trying to take on God himself? Verse 13. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, those very clouds that we saw coming with the Ancient of Days, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a bloke, like a human, like a person, like a son of man. What is God's response to the barbaric, failed leadership of humanity? It's a human ruler. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to God himself. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. There's no battle here. There's no animosity. This is no human trying to break in and take something that doesn't belong to him. It's the exact opposite. It's a human, remember Daniel 1, who was being given everything by God, verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What's the secret to a kingdom that will never end on earth? It's actually not violence. It's not power. It's not ruling with might. It's not atrocity. It's just receiving. It's some guy being given eternal rule to the glory of God, a kingdom that shall not pass away. What an extraordinary mystery. At the heart of the rule of God, in his response to failed barbaric human leadership, is a human who will have a kingdom that will not end. Verse 15 is a little bit of an understatement for me. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was in me, was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. That's kind of the goldfish in the blender moment. If you're a goldfish living in a blender, there'd be a certain amount of anxiety in your life. This is Daniel, and remember, he got this vision during the reign of Belshazzar. Two kings into a four-king sequence, and the fourth will not end for a while. He knows that the future is not going to be pretty. And that's what he's uh, focused on there in verse 16. He wants to know. And so we're told in verse 17, if you like, everything that we've already seen. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. You've gone through two, Daniel. There are two to come. They're going to be violent. They're going to be oppressive. They're going to be like beasts. They're going to be like those dogs. That's the other thing bike riders hate, dogs. If you've got a ferocious dog, please shut your gate. Because dogs love to chase and they love to run. How many dogs have I been chased by? And the bigger the dog, the scarier they are. But according to God, the rulers who are barbaric, they're just like dogs. They're like beasts. They're dehuman. And like every animal that oversteps its bounds, 
they are rulers that will be done away with. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But here's the key, verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. What is it that Daniel is being challenged to see? He is being challenged to see through the oppressive reign of rulers that I just cannot imagine living under. He is being encouraged to see the heavenly reality. What's the heavenly reality? The God who is in control and the everlasting nature of the people of God. What does God want us to see when we look around at a world that is chaotic and out of control? Yes, he wants us to see that horrible people do horrible things and that they will be held to account. But he wants us to see, verse 18, that nothing can stop the kingdom of the saints. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. What Daniel's still perplexed, he wants to know more. He wants to know what about the particulars, what's it going to look like. He's told in verses 19 and following that what awaits him is not something nice. We're going to see a king come kingdom. That kingdom is going to be anti-everything that is good. It's going to be violent. It's going to be oppressive. And of course, if you track the history uh, from Daniel onwards, somewhere around that 6th century BC onwards, what do you see? You see violent rulers doing violent things. You see the people of God being oppressed. Verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel... My thoughts greatly alarmed me and my colour changed and I kept the matter in my heart. Friends, what on earth do we do with Daniel chapter 7? I hope if there is something that you can see from this chapter, you can see the way that when God looks at four kings who back in their day and age were controlling the whole known world, when they had absolute power, when whatever they wanted happened, when Nebuchadnezzar was able to throw people to the lions, when he was able to heat up a furnace and throw people in it, when Belshazzar was threatening to kill lots of people, when Darius again threw people to the lion's den, when Cyrus the Persian ruled the whole known world through tyranny and violence. What did God see when he looked down at these giants? dehumanized beasts he saw dogs Nebuchadnezzar designed one of the wonders of the ancient world one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the hanging gardens of Babylon look it up on Wikipedia read all about the extraordinary things that Nebuchadnezzar achieved how did God picture him some junkyard dog with rabies some violent out of control dehumanized beast a monster what does God see when he looks right now at Afghanistan and he sees violent powerful men using their violence towards tyranny and towards terror he sees subhuman substandard leadership he sees beasts he sees something that will be judged by his fire what does he look at God what's it like for him when he looks on Myanmar and he sees the coup and he sees the violence and he sees all the promises of violence to come he's not impressed 
He doesn't see something worth worshipping. He doesn't see something worth clasping after. He just sees mess and dehumanised rule. What's it like for God when he sees Australia? How are we, people with power in Australia, viewed by God? What do you reckon God thought of us when we first turned up here on these shores? Were we nice to the people that were here? Or were we beasts? Did we take? Did we destroy? Did we grab? Was God impressed? And what about when God looks at those of us with power here today? What about when he just looks at men who use violence? I mentioned my daughter before, Sophie, she's 13 years old. Do you know the biggest risk factor to my daughter and the biggest risk factor until she turns 45 is me? Men. My precious daughter is more likely to die at the hands of a violent male that she is related to or that she is in a romantic relationship with than any other thing. Me. I am more dangerous to my daughter than cancer, than road trauma, than heart attacks, than COVID. What is the biggest danger facing women in Australia right now? Me. What does God think when he sees men who use violence to get their way? What does God think when he looks down at the Australian men who use oppression to get their own way? He sees beasts. He sees subhuman rule. It's not very nice, is it? Roughly 120,000 women in the 2018-2019 financial year had to seek emergency accommodation because of violent men. 97% of violence in Australia is from men. The biggest group is young men. We are raising young men to be beasts. And God is not impressed. It's home a little bit when you see the way that God pitches violent rule, doesn't it? This is the chapter that reminds us that just because we go to a wonderful church, and this is a wonderful church, and it reminds us that just because you're wonderful people, and you are, I have benefited so much from you, it encourages us not to be ignorant and naive. When men use violence, it is abhorrent. And there will be men in every group who use intimidation in their families. And this is a chapter, if you like, that causes us to try and repent because Nebuchadnezzar, remember, he was one of the beasts and yet he repented to the God of heaven. This is one of those chapters that just begs you this morning, if you've got a problem with violence, if you've got a problem with anger, if you raise your voice, if you intimidate your kids, if you intimidate your wife, this chapter reminds you what God sees when he looks at you and it invites you to repent. It's an ugly thought, I'll move on, I don't want to linger, but friends, if that is you, you need help because violent rule is subhuman rule. But at the other side of the spectrum, 
This chapter reminds us that behind all violent and oppressive rule is actually the God who is in control. This, this is the chapter that gives us hope in what God is like because when you look at the world around you, says this chapter, it's actually not the efforts of people that is going to make the end difference. It's actually God himself and his throne room and his judgment and his king. Again, this is one of those chapters, if nothing else, it forces you to see the power of prayer because Daniel as extraordinary as he was in the lives of these four kings, as great as his advice was, he was not the one who actually controlled what happened, was he? It was God. God is the power behind history. He is the power behind reality. He is the one who is pure. He is the one who sits on the throne and he is the one who rules. This passage encourages you to pray. Prayer is the thing. That will make the biggest difference in the end because God is a God who is in control. This passage reminds us that God hates violent rule. This passage reminds us that God is indeed in control. But of course, the biggest thing that this passage does for us as the people of God who lives after Jesus is it gives us a picture of the eternal king. The extraordinary addition to our understanding of who God is and of what he's doing from this chapter onwards is this idea that God is going to invite humanity into the very rule of God himself and that the problem of human rulers is actually going to be addressed by a human ruler who has been ordained by God to institute the kingdom of God and it is a kingdom that will last forever. And this chapter reminds us that into the very nature of God himself, humanity is invited. So much so that there will one day be, after Daniel 7, a man who could be worshipped, just like God was. Now what a ridiculous thought before Daniel 7 that must have been. There has been no man worthy of worship. When you look at men who are in control anywhere in history, all you see is beasts. But this chapter gives us a hint that there will be a man worthy of worship to the glory of God and will actually be the avenue and instrument of everything that he's doing here on earth. And who on earth could that be? And of course, every Sunday school kid knows the answer. It's none other than Jesus. This is the image that Jesus wants you to have in mind when he introduces himself. This is the image he wants you to have. He is the Christ, he is the King, but he's more than that. He is the Lord of Lords, he is the Son of Man, he is the eternal figure invited into the very nature of God who was going to rule all humanity as the true human can so that the kingdom of God can be established forever. Have a listen to Mark chapter 2 with me. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, this is Mark 2 verse 7, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Can you see that Jesus there is acting like a judge sitting on the very throne room of the throne in heaven? You know, he's acting like God himself. He is forgiving sins. Now, what man could have the audacity to actually think that he could announce God's judgment? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes, quite rightly, I might add, Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, who does this man think he is? Why does he speak like that? It is a valid question, isn't it? Who on earth could claim to speak for God? He is blaspheming for who can forgive sins but God alone. And immediately, 
Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, perceiving in his very nature, it's almost as if he is God himself, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man, that one that the eternal God has instituted to be the focal point of all of his rule, of all of his judgments, of all of his care, the true human, that one that we've been waiting for right since the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Can you see the way that Jesus is inviting you to have apocalyptic glasses? Everyone on the day around Jesus, what did they see? They just saw a man. They just saw a bloke who said some crazy things. And they just saw some guy and then no doubt later went home and did something important like watch the footy or rode their bike or whatever they did back then. That's, they couldn't see. Jesus is inviting you to have apocalyptic glasses. He is inviting you to see the power that is behind every power. He is inviting you to see ultimate reality that this man, Jesus, can speak for God, can forgive as if he were God. What would it have been like to be there on the day, to have those apocalyptic glasses and to actually see Jesus for who he really is? Mark chapter 2, verse 12. And he rose and immediately he picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed. And everyone glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Friends, don't rule with violence. Pray to the God who is in control of all things. But if nothing else, I invite you to wear the gospel glasses, the apocalyptic glasses, so that you can see the man who will rule all people and all nations for all times, the Son of Man, Jesus, the one who can offer forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we thank you for the wild ride that is Daniel 7. Lord God, we thank you for the clarity with which it helps us see violent human rule. It's ugly, it's subhuman, it's disgusting. Forgive us when we have shared those tendencies. Lord God, we thank you that you are the God who is in control of all things. And so we do pray to you, Lord. We beg you that you would stop the violence that we see in our world, the violence in Afghanistan, the violence in Myanmar, the violence in Australia. Lord God, we would love to see you, the God of the whole world, bring the pandemic to an end. What we would love most, Lord, is that we could see you in the man Jesus, the true man the true image of God. And we thank you that because of him, we have forgiveness possible even to us. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.